Hi everyone. Today's Bible reading is Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 to 4. In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word after he had provided purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs Thanks, Dennis. Uh, my name's Alex. If I haven't met you before, it's uh, lovely to be with you uh, as we open up uh, the book of Hebrews. Uh, today we're really focusing on the first four verses that Dennis uh, read to us, uh, this magnificent statement about the glorious Son of God. But before we kind of get into those verses, we're going to take a look at the bigger picture of the book of Hebrews uh, to help us navigate through the trees over the coming weeks. Uh, If you'd like to sort of dig a bit further in uh, to Hebrews, uh, particularly the big picture of the book, uh, during the week on Wednesday night we had uh, Andrew Malone from uh, Ridley Theological College come and speak to us, do a bit of an overview of the book. Uh, If you missed that, you can catch that online. Uh, We've got it on our website. The other thing you can do uh, is we've got some um, Bible commentaries out in the foyer, uh, one that was written by Peter Adam, our Vicar Emeritus, and uh, you can grab a copy of that for $20 each. Uh, They'll be on sale after the service if you would like to do that. Now, there are lots of different types of writing in the Bible, uh, but what is the book of Hebrews? Uh, It reads a little bit like a New Testament letter, that's how it ends, but you read through it, and it kind of feels like a sermon. It has large sections of deep theological reflection, uh, an Old Testament exposition, and it's got like some uh, application points, things we need to do uh, in light of them. And the writer to the Hebrews describes uh, what he he wrote like this in chapter 13, verse 22. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation or my, my word of urging, my word of encouragement... For in fact, I have written to you quite briefly. So, you know, this is, a, this is a small sermon. But if you want to see how the Old Testament is really fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you want to see how the Old Testament and, and New Testament intersect, Hebrews is really a great place to go. Now, having said all that, we don't actually know who wrote it. Uh, Some people have speculated that it's the Apostle Paul, but that's unlikely, and I'll say a little bit more on that later. So we really don't know who wrote uh, this wonderful book. What is clear, though, is that uh, the writer was known to uh, his original readers and was probably one of their leaders. Uh, That person was away, so uh, he wrote back to his uh, congregation, his church, uh, with the things that he would have liked to have said to them in person. Uh, again, we don't actually know uh, the precise identity of who it was written to. I mean, the title isn't really that specific, really, is it? 
Indeed, the title is an original and was, uh, kind of reflects the contents that was given to the book sometime in the late 2nd century. But as we read through the letter, we get some clues as to who this was originally written to. And it was probably written to a group of uh, Jewish Christians or to a church or a community with lots of uh, Jewish, uh, people with Jewish background in it. If you read through the letter, you'll see there's lots about Israel's history Uh, Lots of explanation about how Jesus uh, fulfills and indeed supersedes uh, the Jewish institutions in the Old Testament. You see here, the writer says, they were great, but Christ is better. They were the shadow, but he is the reality. Another clue about the original recipients is given in chapter 2, verse 3. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Uh, So these people, it seems, along with the author, had not actually heard from Jesus himself. That's one reason why the Apostle Paul is probably not the author, because he heard and he saw Jesus. He's very clear about that. Uh, But the writer and and the original recipients, uh, they learned about this uh, great salvation from those who heard from Jesus. They were, if you like, Uh, the next step along, second generation Christians. Uh, As we read on through the letter, we do learn some other things uh, about uh, these people. We know that they suffered significant persecution sometime in the past. If you flip over to chapter 10 from verse 32, remember those earlier days after you had received the light, so after you'd become Christian, when you endured a great conflict full of suffering, Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So sometime in the past they'd suffered quite seriously. But even though at that time they suffered their faith really had flourished. They knew what was really important. But since then, at the time of the letter's writing, a a problem had developed. Uh, Things had become unstuck. There was a very spiritual crisis that had emerged amongst them. You see, scattered right through this letter are a, a, a number of urgent warnings a series of alarm bells that toll right through the book of Hebrews. And here are just a few of those alarm bells, these warnings. We must pay careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. That's in chapter 2. Chapter 3, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. He's talking about people in the past who knew God's grace and salvation. Uh, The generation of Israelites who died in the wilderness because they refused to enter the promised land and saying, don't perish like them. Uh, These warnings, these alarm bells, they come in response to this spiritual crisis. You see, perhaps in the face of this persecution, 
maybe in the face of worldly attractions, maybe because they were getting just a little bit apathetic, maybe they're feeling the pull back to their old faith, their old Jewish faith. Maybe some are feeling the temptation to desert Christ and chuck in their face altogether. That's the great spiritual crisis facing them. We often talk about this kind of great chasm, this gulf between us and the Bible. That was then, different culture, 2,000 years ago, this is now. What relevance does this really have for us? Well, as I read through this letter, as we read through this letter, I think we're going to see that this gap, this gulf, isn't really there at all. Because this great spiritual crisis that is so powerfully addressed in the letter, is that not a crisis that we all face in churches everywhere today? It's a danger that arises once you've been a Christian a while. It's a danger that the writer describes as drifting. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Drifting, like a boat that becomes untethered from its mooring, that's the danger. Drifting from Christ as the secure centre, the living heartbeat of our lives. Drifting towards something more tangible, something more comfortable, something more secure, something we see as better. That's the great spiritual crisis that they're facing. I know that crisis. And I suspect you know it in your lives as well. And so the purpose of this letter really as full as it is of all sorts of theology, is really to address this crisis, to warn against the danger of drifting and to urge potential drifters, cling to Christ, cling to his salvation that's found in him alone. And that message is relevant for all of us, I think. Well, the aim of the rest of this afternoon really is to look at these first four verses We'll get there soon, uh, but first we're just going to kind of jump forwards a little bit in order to really understand the purpose of these four verses. Now, on the back of your new sheet here, you'll see some uh, other verses from chapter 1 and chapter 2, and I'll just point out a couple of things. Notice that the word that begins chapter 5 is the word for, and that's because... uh, Really, this is really, in chapter 1, you've got one big connected argument. And then, if you want to see the point of that argument, you've got to go to chapter 2, verse 1. And in the original, uh, it begins with the word therefore. It's in the middle of the sentence uh, in our English translations. But in the original, it's therefore. That's kind of flagging that the aim of where this argument is going is here. Start of chapter 2. It's like the application, the end point. Have a listen to it with me. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, 
how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. If that was serious back then, if disobedience, if drifting away was serious back then, how much more so now that you've heard it through Jesus? Many of us know people who have drifted away. Perhaps you've been there at some point in your past. Perhaps that's where you are now. So how do you guard against it? How do we help those around us not drift? Pay careful attention to what you've heard. The word about the Son the word about his great salvation. Christianity really isn't primarily about patching up your problems. I mean, it can do that, but you can do that other ways. Sometimes you don't need faith or you don't need Christianity to do it, at least on the surface. Christianity is also not chiefly about um, being a good person. You can do it, at least superficially, sometimes without faith. We know lots of good people with good lives who aren't Christians, right? No, Christianity is about a great salvation. A great salvation announced by and centred on the Lord Jesus Christ. Never forget that. It's a salvation that begins with his life, his death, his resurrection and its fulfilment, its end point lies somewhere in the future. That's what we're waiting for. And the point the writer is driving at is as we, uh, as we wait for that, we need to pay careful attention to keep to Jesus and his great salvation because there's no salvation apart from him. Well, how is our writer going to achieve his purpose? How is, is he going to help us stick to Christ? Well, in the first four verses, he does it by pointing in the most powerful way to the majesty of Jesus, to the glorious Son of God. Now let me read to you one uh, verses 1 to 4 again, given all of that, given that's where the writer is taking us. Uh, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he has become, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. In the original language, that's one long, glorious sentence. And we need to hear it. We need to hear about the unmatchable greatness, the unrivaled glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because once you know that here but also here. Why would you drift away? 
Now, one way to get across how magnificent, how wonderful Jesus is, is by comparing him to something else that's also great. And then by showing how much Jesus is so much better. And that's what's happening right through Hebrews. And that's what's happening here. Verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Now, there's a comparison there that might not grab you straight away, but let's just have a think about it for a moment, right? Think about what the Old Testament really is. In the Old Testament scriptures, through the prophets, God, the creator of all things, the judge of all peoples, he's actually spoken. He's uh, communicated, he's revealed himself to us. Uh, The Old Testament scriptures, they contain the very words of the one true living God. That's what it is. And the reference in verse 4, if you have a look at your outline there, the last sentence, making a similar point. In the Old Testament period, God spoke through the prophets. He also spoke through angels. They delivered the law. They delivered his messengers. They were his messengers, his divine messengers. They wielded his divine authority. And the writer will go on in, from verse 5 to speak about how much better Jesus is than the angels. But the point for today is this. The Old Testament scriptures, they're utterly extraordinary. In them, the God of the universe, he reveals himself. He speaks to us. But, verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Yes, the Old Testament is remarkable, but God has now spoken by his Son. These last days are not kind of some special period in the future. They began with the coming of Christ. The last days are now. We're in them. God speaking, his revelation has reached a climax. He's spoken to us by his son. He's spoken to us in a way that he has never spoken before. The son, he's God's greatest, his his final, his definitive revelation. Who better to reveal God? Who better to make him and his ways known than the glorious Son? No one. Jesus, he's the ultimate prophet of God. And so that means, because God himself, God has revealed himself that way, it means that God's not a mystery. He's not shrouded in some cloud of unknowing. If you want to know God truly, know him you can. You don't need special enlightenment or special rituals or to go through hoops. You just need to come to the Son. Come to Jesus. And we know him through the scriptures. And if the Son of God, if he is God's full and final and definitive word, if He's truly how we meet God. How important, how urgent that we pay most careful attention, that we listen to him, that we heed him, that we obey him. 
Before we move on, let me just say God's word to us in Jesus hasn't made the Old Testament redundant. It's not irrelevant. He's not the new model that makes the old model obsolete that we just kind of chuck out the back. Uh, Jesus, in his work and words, he actually uh, shows us what the full and final meaning of the Old Testament is, its true meaning. God And God has still spoken through his prophets. We must listen to and obey those words, but now we understand them through the lens of Jesus. Indeed, if we're going to fully understand who Jesus is, we need to actually read the Old Testament, understand it, and that's what Hebrews helps us do so powerfully. Now, in order to see more vividly the greatness of Jesus, the the writer makes a further series of statements about him. Some are allusions to various Old Testament texts which I'll briefly talk about. This is the second line down, second part of verse 2. Jesus is the one whom he, which is God, appointed heir of all things. This is an allusion to Psalm 2, I think. Psalm 2 is about God's ideal king. But that ideal king never existed in God's history. They were all sinful, flawed, weak. And what the writer is saying is Jesus Christ, he's that ideal king. He's God's son as he's called in Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, after his coronation, he's given all things. Verse 8, this is what God says to the king, his son, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. When Jesus was raised, that was his coronation installation and what did Jesus say all authority has been given to me Jesus is the one that God has appointed to rule over to own all things the entire universe is his and under his reign and if that's who Jesus is we must pay careful attention We must heed his word. We must obey it. Now the end of verse 3, second second, uh, line up from the bottom of the outline there. I think this passage is quite deliberately structured. I've tried to kind of capture the structure in the outline, so it would be really good if you could have it in front of you right now. Uh, it's like a series of concentric statements, right? The first statement is related to the last, the second to the second last and so on and the structure really is designed to place emphasis on what is in the middle. Uh, In kind of writing, it's called a chiasm. You don't really need to know that bit of information but it's helpful to see how the passage is structured because it helps us understand what the writer is driving at. And so as you can see, uh, the last part of verse 3 corresponds to that one second uh, up from the bottom. Sorry, to the second one from the top. The ones in green. Uh, After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Again, there's another allusion to the Old Testament. Uh, This time he's alluding to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 in many ways is very similar 
to Psalm 2. It's called a messianic psalm. Messiah in Hebrew means king. So it's a description of God's ideal king the way Psalm 2 is, hence the correspondence here in the structure. And uh, him sitting at the right hand of the majesty in heaven is a reference to the place of ultimate authority at the right hand of God. But if you go back to Psalm 110, uh, it adds to Psalm 2 and says, this king is also a priest. A priest is one who in the Old Testament stands between us and God. The priest acted as a bridge uh, to bring us in all our brokenness, our sin, our weakness, back into relationship with a holy God. And so that's who Jesus is. Not just a prophet, not just a king, but a priest, the ultimate priest. And there were lots of priests under the old covenant, but there were none like Jesus. By his death on the cross, he made the ultimate sacrifice. By his blood, he purified us from the stain of all our guilt, all our sin. He secured ultimate forgiveness, full forgiveness, once and for all. He opened the way to God forever. You see, that's what it means when it says he sat down, right? What do you do at the end of the day when your work is finished? Hopefully you sit down. That's really what the reference is to here. His offering was accepted. His work was finished. It was completed. Sin had been fully, finally paid for forever. And because of that, we can come into relationship with God We can enter his throne room full of joy and confidence in full relationship. Do you see Jesus? Do you see him? There's none like him. He's he's the perfect prophet. He's the ultimate revelation of God. He's the perfect king. He's ideal ruler. He's the priest who provides perfect redemption. Do you see how Jesus is so much better? Do you see how he surpasses all those trivial things, those fleeting things we might fill our lives with, the things we might kind of set our eyes on, the things that might cause us to drift away? Well, these verses are a prologue. We'll pick up many of the themes in greater detail in the coming weeks. Here there's a particular focus on the glory of Christ, his divinity. And in the next few weeks we'll come to his humanity as well, a focus on that. But we're not quite finished this afternoon. Go back to the end of verse 2, third line from the top. The Son is the one through whom also he, God, made the universe. Just dropped in there, right? Jesus is more than the ideal king. He's even more than the one who has ultimate rule. He's the one through whom whom all things, not just a few things, all things were created. He's the one, third line from the bottom, sustaining all things by his powerful word. All things owe their origin and continuing existence to whom? 
Jesus, right? Our education uh, teaches us to understand that we walk outside and we see the clouds, the trees. It's, it's kind of all just there. The universe just exists. There's no direction, no purpose. There's no will, there's no authority ruling over it. But it isn't all just there. Existence isn't just meaningless. There is behind it an almighty creator, a sustainer, a personal will and power. And if that were to be withdrawn or taken away, everything just falls apart and we cease to exist. And that personal power, that will, it's extraordinary. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And now the most extraordinary reality of them all, right at the centre, the beginning of verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. When we see Jesus, we see nothing less than the glory, the radiance of God. The exact representation of his being. It's hard to express in words, isn't it, how amazing this is. Uh, the, the Gospel uh, writer John in chapter 1 says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then later on in verse 18 of chapter 1, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and in closest relationship with the Father, ha- he has made him known. Let me say this, there is nothing, there is no one better than Jesus. How could there possibly be? He's the prophet whom God God has, has spoken his fullest and final word. He's the king who sits enthroned on with all power and authority. He's the priest who's fully forgiven us. He's a creator, he's a sustainer. He is the divine and glorious Son of God who brings us into relationship with him. Why would you ever want to drift away from him? What is so precious, so important in your life that you would drift away from him for it? Why would we drift into disobedience, into unbelief, into neglect? But there is a danger, isn't there? So today, will you pay more careful, the most careful attention to Jesus? This year, will you stay with him? Will you cling to him. Let me pray for us as I invite the band up. Father God, we praise you. Lord Jesus, we praise you. Holy Spirit, we praise you. Help us to see the glory of Jesus more clearly.
through your power, help us to see him as he really is and help us to cling to him this year. Amen.